Support for WFIU News comes from the IU Alumni Association, now offering IU Proud, a member program designed for recent graduates and those facing economic hardship. More information at alumni.iu.edu join. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg. Today, we're going to talk about the 75th anniversary of the Kinsey Institute at IU and also about its history. We have four guests with us. Three are in the studio. Justin Garcia is the executive director and senior scientist at the Kinsey Institute. Natalie Kubot is director of development for the Kinsey Institute. Jim Capshew is the IU historian and professor in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science and Medicine. He's also a biographer of Herman B. Wells, and he can talk a lot about what Dr. Wells went through when the Kinsey Institute was born 75 years ago. And also joining us over Zoom is Natalie Kubat, who is director of develop. I'm sorry, Natalie's here in the studio. <laughs> I'm, here. I'm sorry, I'm reading through my notes here. Alexa Marcotte who is Senior Research Associate. If you have questions or comments, you can phone us uh, at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington. You can call us also toll-free, 877-285-9348. You can send us email to news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can join us on the air by calling, as I said, 812-855-0811. So, with that introduction, let me go to Justin and say, Justin, 75 years of the Kinsey Institute, what was, what was its original mission and how has the mission changed or has it changed? Sure, and thanks so much. I'm uh, thrilled to be here and able to talk about it. This is my favorite topic. So, um, so when the Institute was founded in 1947, it was before um, Alfred Kinsey, who was an IU professor of zoology, and colleagues put out the first book, the first, what was the, known as the two Kinsey reports, Sexual Behavior of the Human Male was published in 1948, Sexual Behavior of the Human Female in 1953. So the Institute was incorporated at the time as a separate 501c3 in some ways to really protect the research program. It was to protect the data. It was to protect what was at the time a growing archive. At, the, at that time, there were 15,000 items that Kinsey had amassed in terms of photographs, archives. Uh, today, it's over 600,000 items. It's the largest collection of sexuality-related, largest research collection of sexuality-related materials in the world. And so the Institute was really founded to encourage this research on human sexuality, but to protect it and to also protect the participants. It's something that has always been very important to the Institute and including all of the researchers today that when people share a part of their lives with us as a research uh, participant, we have an extraordinary obligation to keep that data safe and secure and to tell a story with that data that respects the people who are sharing a piece of their lives with us. Mm -hmm. So, and that's consistent to, to, to today. Yeah, we try, we try hard, um, especially on protocols around protecting participants and data security. And the other thing that's still true, I think, that rings um, home is we really try and be a non-judgmental place and somewhere that it's an unbiased approach to studying human sexuality. Um, certainly there are things that are good and bad in people's lives, but, but our job as a research institute is really to, to discover, to explore. So our, our tagline today is exploring sexuality relationships and well-being. And, so I want to turn to Jim Capshew, and Jim, I, I know that, you know, Dr. Herman Wells, you, you knew him well, and you've studied him and written about him. The Kinsey Institute and, and having Alfred Kinsey here was um, sort of a, uh, it was a hot, talk, a hot topic in Indiana at that time. Can you give us a history 
Well, it's, it's a long history, so we don't have that much time. But basically, uh, when Wells became president, acting president, uh, Kinsey uh, had this idea, uh, and he cre- recruited some, some other fa- faculty to actually offer a marriage course. And so it was not officially uh, an IU course. It was like a, an extra course. I don't know exactly, a special course or whatever. And, um, and Wells was able to uh, approve that by the trustees, actually. And then, uh, he start, and then Wells then became uh, permanent president in 1938. And so then that's when uh, Kinsey really uh, understood that Wells would be supportive of his research. Uh, he wasn't uh, in favor or, or not about the findings, but really the freedom for doing research uh, in a very controversial area, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so he started doing the, the uh, Mary's course. Um, one of the trustees, uh, Mrs. Teeter, uh, took that course and uh, sort of, you know, put her uh, approval on that. And, the, uh, and, and so the trustees have been involved in that, you know, from the beginning. And so Wells had to like, you know, really uh, nurture the understanding of the trustees. And then, uh, but then there was a lot of, uh, a lot of pushback uh, from uh, the religious uh, uh, community and that this is really not something that should not be studied at IU. And so Wells got calls from government officials and pastors and other folks. And so then uh, Wells did talk to Kinsey and said, well, you know, this uh, Mary's course is great, but, and you're also doing research, and so you need to really decide which one you want to do more than the other. And so Kinsey would, you know, definitely would go to the research. And so so that's when he started uh, this you know, fairly uh, large-scale and, and longitudinal research project uh, interviewing um, uh, normal human beings about their sexual histories. And so, uh, and so that was really the beginning of, of, the, of the, the, uh, the research. And it did come out of this sense that, well, we really don't know a whole lot of, about sexuality. Students would ask questions, and, and, and Kinsey didn't know the answers. So he tried to investigate that and, you know, this, this natural uh, human curiosity. And he also, he was a very accomplished biologist, right? And so, so he used his biological training and his interest in techno- taxonomy to really try to answer these questions. And so he had to start, you know, getting some data and getting some, some, some uh, interviews and getting, you know, uh, empirical um, uh, data set to actually answer those questions. And so that's, that's the beginning of that. And so uh, I, I'll talk more maybe a little bit later about, about how uh, the, the Institute developed. But, you know, it was a, per, it was a personal uh, appeal to uh, IU president and, and Wells and, and Kinsey, you know, were on the same page in terms of freedom to research and the idea that knowledge is liberating to human hu- humans, right? And so that's, that's sort of, they, they were part of that, that, that sort of, that mentality. And of course, Wells was kind of a, a New Deal Democrat. Uh, Kinsey was a, 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 a Republican, right? Imagine that, right? <laughs> uh, and of course, th- th- those, those uh, uh, labels change over time, of course. But, but they, they, and they, they didn't really, they didn't, they weren't, they didn't socialize. They they weren't friends in the sense of, you know, having d- dinners and things like that. They were they, they were understanding that this was really important to to support the idea of freedom to research and uh, academic freedom is a is is a huge thing. And and Wells was you know rock solid on that. And he had to convince the trustees and the public and the alumni and other faculty. And so he was, he was very proactive in terms of uh, uh, supporting Kinsey. We'll talk about some of the other challenges of 
come up over time and some of the other ways that Dr. Wells su- supported the Institute. Alexa Marcotte, I want to bring you on just to talk about um, you know, your ability to do research within Kinsey. What are you working on now? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks so much for having me. I work mostly on what we call sex tech or sexual technologies. So my work is really at the intersection of how people use technology um, in their sexual romantic lives to sort of sustain those intimate connections. Um, And working at Kinsey has been wonderful. It's a really collaborative environment and it's exciting to be able to work in an institute that has such a history, but work on really novel and exciting research that sort of pushes forward um, our research and makes it increasingly relevant for people in their lives. Now, your PhD is in gender studies. How does that overlap with Kinsey? Yeah, so my PhD is in gender studies. I did it here at IU. Um, and part of me coming here was the having the opportunity to work with Kinsey. So I knew of Kinsey even before I knew of the Department of Gender Studies here. Um, and I think there's a really great connection between them. They're certainly not the same in terms of their focus, gender studies has um, people doing a lot of different stuff from deep humanities work to science work to sort of what we do at Kinsey. So there's a really broad range of what people do in the department. At the Institute, people have um, come from a really wide variety of backgrounds. And to me, that's what makes it so exciting. It's so interdisciplinary. So there, you can find a home there if you're from gender studies very easily. If you're from informatics, if you have a biology background, evolutionary biology in Justin's case. Um, So there's really the opportunity for for a lot of different people to come and collaborate on these projects that I think are really important. I'll have uh, you and Justin talking more about about research, but I want to turn to Natalie now. Um, Natalie, you're Director of Development for the Kinsey Institute. I guess the first thing I want to ask you, and Justin might help with this answer, but how is Kinsey funded? Kinsey's funded in a variety of ways. My particular focus is philanthropic gifts. Mm-hmm. So that's so important to helping us maintain our mission and continue our activities. About 40% of our budget comes from philanthropic gifts. So it really plays a big part of what we do. And the uh, what's your, what's your el- elevator pitch? for philanthropic gifts for Kinsey. Yeah, so I think what's unique about the Kinsey Institute is that we have our collection, but then we also have the research piece to it. And the way those intersect is is amazing and not really is doesn't happen anywhere else. And so that makes us very unique. Um, and I feel like we've got, um, We've got a mission that everybody can relate to. So I think that that there's so many different opportunities and um, it's really important to us. And we just are always so thankful of our don- to our donors and, and what they help us accomplish. Help me understand, you know, the different kinds of opportunities that you have. I mean, I, I know we talk about that collection, 600,000 items now mm-hmm. in the collection, but also um, the research area of Kinsey is obviously very important and I know that there are Kinsey researchers who've worked in more like I mean I think about um, we did a show on documentary not too long ago that Kinsey researchers were helping with and so there are a lot of different things that Kinsey's involved with so you know what are some of the ways that donors can get involved what like specific ways? sure yeah so when it comes to the collections um, we need donor funding to help with acquiring things but also the preservation of what we have some of our items are over two hundred thousand years or two thousand years old so um, you know we take that responsibility very um, seriously but then also just digitizing it so helping be more accessible to people outside of the building Um, That's really important for our collections. But then on the research side, we have our faculty that um, we want to help support and help fund the work that they're doing um, and their role within the Kinsey Institute. Are there many endowed chairs at Kinsey? So we have a few endowed endowed positions, which are really important just to help with the stability of the Kinsey Institute and what we do. But we're always looking for (laughs) more funding in that area. Okay. We're talking about the 75th anniversary of the Kinsey Institute today on Noon Edition. If you have a question or a comment, you can phone us at uh, 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. You can also send us your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org or to Twitter. We're at Noon Edition. 
Justin, you're the senior scientist at <laughs> Kinsey, so um, an evolutionary biologist and a sex researcher. What kind of research did you do before you became the executive director? Sure, and I, I still and you're still doing. I still it. try yeah. <laughs> try and do some. A little harder these days to find the time, but um, so <clears throat> my my own training was in uh, anthropology and evolutionary biology, as, as you and Alexa said. And what I was initially interested in was the evolution of monogamy. So I was interested in uh, how among humans we see this, tend to see this pattern of what we call social monogamy, which is different from sexual monogamy. And biologists actually don't use the term just monogamy. We talk about either social monogamy as a behavioral strategy or a, you know, a relationship, a pair bond. And that's different from a pattern of sexual behavior in, in our case, which maybe is exclusivity on average about 85% of societies. So I was interested in those questions, really some of the biological factors. What are the mechanisms? Why are those two different factors, the sort of social and the sexual? Um, but then from there, I started getting interested in, and I think years ago we talked about this, I worked on hookup culture and casual sex for a while. I worked on infidelity. I worked on dating. But my, I was always pivoting from these questions of monogamy. Even when I worked on casual sex and hookups, I was approaching it from the question of, well, if we know we have these tendencies for long-term pair bonds the, as the context with most, within which most human sexual behavior occurs around the globe, why do we see casual sex? So it was sort of a theoretical question of just like, how do we make sense of the world around us? Um, and then from there, I've worked on a lot of other stuff. Um, I've also done quite a lot of work on sexual and relationship satisfaction, uh, including uh, orgasm is something I've always been interested in because it's both biological and sociocultural. So you, you can't really remove the body from thinking about your state of mind uh, and, your, and you know, how stigma can impact your ability to enjoy or not enjoy your own sexual activities. Mm -hmm. So um, that's sort of been my path. And uh, I first came here in 2011. I was a postdoc to uh, two directors ago, uh, Dr. Julia Hyman, when I first came and then uh, stayed, and, and I, my tenure home is in gender studies and have gone through the ranks. Um, so I still try and do some of that research, but a lot of my time is now uh, as a director. Uh, the Institute's bigger than people often think. So we have, uh, um, we have about 20 researchers, including our core faculty and our postdocs. Uh, then the, uh, we have an education and outreach program, and then the uh, collections, the library and special collections, and then the administrative team. Uh, Natalie, who helps uh, helps us keep the doors open, and many others. Yeah, for do you have when you have a particular subject that you're going to study? And same question for Alexa. I mean, I'm I'm an, intrigued by the funding mechanisms. Mm -hmm. I mean, are you getting grants to do this? Or are you getting sponsors to do this? How how does it work? Yeah, and it's uh, we have a mix. So we um, we have a, a base budget from the university that kind of covers the infrastructure, um, so the basic administrative needs. And uh, it's an interesting point, I think, as, as Jim mentioned early on, um, since the very beginning of the studies uh, that, that Dr. Kinsey did, there was initially funding from the Rockefeller Foundation that helped support the initial Kinsey report. Um, and, part, and Wells's support was so important to be able to uh, uh, have a research grant to do the study. And since then, uh, there's often been grants and contracts. Now we do a lot of uh, corporate sp uh, partnerships and sponsorships, so we'll often work with um, – so the big study in my lab is the Singles in America project with Match.com we've done for over a decade. They fully fund the study, but we have full scientific uh, authority over it. So it's a partnership. And in some ways, it's because for researchers, for any sex researchers, not just at Kinsey, if you submit a grant to a federal agency about human sexuality – the program officers will write back often and say, well, can you take sex out of the title? And you go, okay, I can get by with that. And then they say, well, can you take sex out of the abstract? And you go, oh, this is pushing it. And then they call again and say, can you take sex out of the grant? And it's um, because they're worried about pushback, uh, maybe from the legislature or elsewhere. So we have to find these creative ways to fund the research. So, so Natalie's work is so important to really help us on the philanthropic side uh, I'm going to get to your core question. Sorry, Bob. The well, great example is we have an endowed chair from uh, Scott Schurz, uh, who passed away a few years ago, and that really helps a lot of our uh, research. It's one that I use as the director. At the start of the pandemic, we did these major studies on the impact of COVID on people's romantic and sexual lives. And what I was able to tell the faculty is don't worry about writing small grants right now. We have funds from a donor who wants us to be excellent in the research domain. That's why he gave us this gift just start collecting data. Uh, 
And we were able to get really unique, powerful data to have offer commentary and insight into what was going on. You know, that, I'm glad you brought that up because mm-hmm. I might have forgotten to even, even ask a question like this. But I think the fact that you have an endowed chair from Scott Scherer. So <laughs> I worked for Scott for many, many yeah. years. And, and I knew Scott was a, a big advocate for the and donor to the, the Kinsey. But Scott was a very conservative guy. There mm-hmm. was no question that Scott was a Republican through mm-hmm. and through. And I guess my question kind of goes to the, the fact that do you have a – is there sort of a uh, profile of your donor base? I mean, no, Scott would no. not seem to fit it. Yeah, no, I think <laughs> that um, our donor profile would um, be hard to kind of summarize. Um, I think what's interesting for me as someone who works in philanthropy, and I've worked at Indiana University for many years, but I've only been with the Kinsey Institute for about a year now, um, our donors come from everywhere. Some of them support the Kinsey Institute because we're part of Indiana University and they love IU and they want to support what IU is doing with the Kinsey Institute. But then others, they support the Kinsey Institute because of the mission. The fact that we're connected to Indiana University isn't as important to them. Right. So that's really something to know. We have, um, you know, we have large groups of people that donate maybe from places you would think. So we have a lot of people from New York City. We have a lot of people from California and Los Angeles. But then we've got people from all around the Midwest as well. And that's what's really exciting. We get to interact with a lot of different types of um, individuals. Jim, I want to turn back to Jim Capshu and and ask about the the Kinsey Institute uh, being in Bloomington, Indiana. Dr. Herman Wells helped that occur and helped it to grow. Could, were there other people that wanted an institute like this at the time that Dr. Wells was protecting it here? Well, that's a good question. I, I haven't done research on that, but I do think that uh, it was kind of extraordinary that Wells uh, was the president at the time, and he had a very, um, you know, r- uh, rock-solid thought about the fact that faculty have to do what they want to do, and so to do research. And it doesn't matter what what subject it is, right? And so Wells also protected uh, other people who had, uh, you know, uh, political uh, problems uh, in their research, right? And so, but Kinsey uh, is kind of extraordinary because uh, Wells was very, pro, as I mentioned before, proactive, that he you know, basically helped Kinsey to to um, protect the institute by incorporating the institute in in 1947, the the year before the Kinsey the first Kinsey report came out. Right, so that was a, a proactive stance. He also got every trustee to basically have uh, sign on to a state note of support. And so so he was very, you know, deliberate about his support. Now, I don't know whether there's other uh, institutions that were doing things like that. I don't think there were. And I think it's kind of unusual to have, uh, you know, Kinsey sort of pivoted from uh, insects uh, to sex. The but gall wasp. The, right? the gall wasp. He was the, the world's expert on, on the taxonomy of gall wasps. But he also had a lot of interest in sex even early on, right? And so I think that, that um, you know, the, of course, as faculty age and cha- they change their, their focus and things like that. So Wells understood sort of the, the human quality of doing that and being – you know, each stage of of support uh, in in faculty careers, and so, you know, Wells was was unusually sensitive to, um, you know, public opinion and about social social relations, and he knew that uh, there was going to be a, a pretty big explosion when that book was published, and it was true, and so um, so, but but you know, he he, he thought also that. It would be hard to recruit faculty if he caved in to the critics, right? And so that's a, another – he's looking for the broad picture about, okay, this is something that has to happen. Uh, 
because otherwise you don't have a freedom, you don't have a, a, a university, right? It's based on freedom. Yeah, I, I want to just dig deeper into that. I mean, um, academic freedom is a term that we hear a lot in a place like Bloomington. So, mm-hmm. you know, what? how do you explain that to, to the critics, a critic that would say, you know, if, say they're in the legislature or something, so I, I don't want you to be studying that. You don't need to study that. There's no need for anybody to have research on that. How do you respond to that? And it, any of you can do, can respond. But Jim, well, you go first. I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, you, ha- you have to have a sort of a, 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 you have to respond appropriately in terms of the, the subject area. But, but the general point is that faculty have to be free to study what they want to study. And, of course, you know, there are certain things that would be out of bounds, but, you know, the, 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 this is like, you know, this is a basic human um, experience and, and, and uh, very much involved in, in biological and social and cultural life. And to sort of say, well, that's out of bounds, then... You know, then there's, you know, other universities would be, you know, say, well, we're going to have, you know, Kinsey come over here, right? But, but yeah, so, you know, I, it's, it's, that's, a, that's a very hard question to sort of say, you know, uh, sort of the counterfactual, right? Uh, I think it's important to think that, 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 that this is what uh, Wells was a huge, I mean, if, if it wasn't for Wells, Kinsey wouldn't have been been able to do what he wanted to do, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, whether or not he would go somewhere else or whatever, who knows? But, but um, so I think, you know, they were, they were, they, they, they had a relationship that was very solid and very deep. Mm-hmm. But, well, yeah, Justin and then Alexa, I'm just further in this question. You can answer how you want, but I'm, I'm just mm-hmm. really intrigued by the idea that a university. You know, researchers study a lot of things, and I think before I moved to Bloomington, when I was like an 18-year-old living in a rural Indiana community, I wondered, mm-hmm. why are they doing research on that? What, what, <laughs> what, you know, that doesn't make any sense to me. But yeah, and it's, I think it's a good question. I think it's um, uh, when people ask, I never get um, uh, offended. I think it's a, a fine question to ask because it is an unusual topic. And I think exactly to echo uh, some of what Jim said. You know, my, my approach is often. As researchers, as an academic community, the, to, to be able to ask uh, these sorts of questions, and IU famously won a U.S. Customs case in the 1950s, I think 1956, related to um, Kinsey's 31 photographs in the collection, and it was on an obscenity, and it was the right to have materials to, for, for research study. And the way I think of it is often, you know, if we take things like someone says, well, why are you studying um, sex and couples, right? And does it what what does it really matter? And I might say, well, what what are you concerned about? And they say, well, we you know uh, what about the traditional marriage? And I think, well, you know what the greatest predictor of divorce of the traditional marriage is, right? And it's people's sex lives. And they go, no, it's money. I go, no, that's not what all the meta analyses say. And they go, oh well, it's family, it's kids. You're right, those are issues, but. Sexuality, the thing we talk about the least in keeping those couples together, is what every meta-analysis after another shows us is important. So I think as a scientist, my question, and I think for our whole team, becomes, you know, if someone says, well, you know, I think we should talk more about traditional relationships. Well, do you know what keeps them together and brings them apart? We have to talk about sex. That's part of the story. Or we did one study on uh, breast cancer survivors and the role of sex in their um, treatment. So we know that let's say some breast cancer survivors, women who might take tamoxifen, an estrogen ablation drug, that often has an impact on their sexual life. Uh, Or people on antidepressants, if you're on an SSRI, that has an impact on sexual function in your sexual life. So you're at times that you need your social support, and particularly intimate relationships, have such an enormous impact on your health and well-being. Yet we have treatments and things going on that are impacting the role of sex in that relationship which negatively impact our well-being and our long-term outcomes. Spousal support is actually one of the best predictors of survivorship for breast cancer survivors, and and people aren't really looking at sex in that. So I often think of those, and even the collections and the materials that we have, I mean, think about the HIV epidemic and what we've amassed and collect, particularly from the LGBTQ community, that is informing what we think about today with COVID and monkeypox. Um, and maybe one more example I'll give, I think often about sex education is that one, that's one that's in the news a lot. 
Um, and we had uh, protesters not long ago who were, who were anti-sex education. And I often think, well, what what is it that you're actually worried about? What is it that concerns you? I mean, there's parents outside that are concerned. And I often sometimes will go out and say, well, just tell me what it is that you're worried about. And they say, well, we don't want to sexualize youth. We don't want to give them sex, you know, this so-called comprehensive sex education. And I go, well, I get that as a concern. I actually, I genuinely do. But here's what the data tell us. The data tell us that youth that have comprehensive sex education have lower rates of sexually transmitted infections, lower rates of unintended pregnancies, lower rates of unwanted abortions, lower rates of uh, relationship tra uh, traumas and abuse. So if you're worried about kids being abused uh, sexually or an intimate partner violence, comprehensive sex ed is the solution. We know that. We have data on that. That arms them to identify the problems. So, so my approach tends to often be you know, thinking that way. And, and I think people then worry, well, what about sex ed in schools? And I think, you know, I put my, my uh, New Yorker hat on sometimes. I go, no one in their right mind is going into an elementary school and teaching kids about sex. You're, uh, sex ed at that level is more about it's okay to tell someone um, that you don't want to give them a hug. It's about consent and bodily autonomy. Of course, it's based on the age group that someone's doing education for. Um, so I often, my approach is often trying to meet people where they are. We know from our own studies, we know people have stigma and shame and concern and worry and sometimes excitement about sex and sexuality. So how do we help use science to fill some of those gaps? Great answers from both of you. I really appreciate them. I, I want to say, um, just to clarify, I, I was even talking more generally about, mm -hmm. you know, people who think, why do you need all that academic freedom about Oh, yeah. You know, I'm a good friend who uh, is no longer in Bloomington. Um, I think she's at Penn State now, but she did a great study. It got a lot of mileage on cat videos, you know. <laughs> so so that academic freedom piece and that sort of the global way, but you've, you've been great in explaining it on, on this. I want to ask Alexa, you've been listening patiently there uh, on Zoom. <laughs> um, you know, what points do you want to react to? Yeah, absolutely. I think in terms of academic freedom, for me, the best part about being at Kinsey and at IU is that I get to do the research that I want to do, which is something that I've never taken for granted because some because there is pushback against this kind of research. And as Justin was saying, sex research, relationship research is so important to people's well-being, and it's often understudied. And I think that it's really important that we don't overlook that. Um, from from being able to do the type of research that I do, from thinking about consent to thinking about uh, where we're going in terms of how people are engaging in sexuality. Those are topics that um, that could be controversial, but I think that they're just really important for, for people's well-being and lives. But I think that makes IU look really good as well, that we have this institute here that does groundbreaking research. We're known all over the world for the work that we do. And I think that that's a benefit to the university and the fact that the university supports us is great. Thank you. That, that's Alexa Marcotte, who's a senior research associate with the Kinsey Institute. We also are talking today to Natalie Kubot, who's the director of development for Kinsey, Jim Capshu, an IU history uh, professor and professor in the Department of History. And he is, um, oh, wait, Department of History <laughs> and Philosophy of Science and Medicine. I'm sorry, Jim. I'm, cut off your title. Yeah, it's a very long one. Um, but he's also a biographer of Herman Wells. We've been talking a lot about the beginning of the Kinsey Institute. And also with us, Justin Garcia, Executive Director and Senior Scientist at Kinsey. It's the 75th anniversary of the Institute. And if you have questions or comments, you can uh, give us a call, 812-855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can also send us your questions, uh, news at indianapublicmedia.org or on Twitter at Noon Edition. We have a question for Natalie. Do we have, does Kinsey have global donors? Oh, yeah, a, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, Alexa mentioned we're known around the world. And it's mm -hmm. interesting when you travel abroad, you can ask people, have you heard of the Kinsey Institute? And so many times people will say yes. Um, so yes, we do. And we've had, um, in the past, we've done some outreach and events um, outside of the United States. And it's something we continue to want to do and, and seek those opportunities. I wanted to ask about the, you know, we are in um, 
I don't know. The world's just in a weird state now. We have a lot of culture wars going on. I would think that that would bring even more pressure to the job you're doing. Justin, can you talk a little bit about how you try to insulate the Institute from these culture wars? <laughs> yeah, I, I wake up almost every morning thinking about this. Um, so I think I think as a, as a research and education institute, part of what is our responsibility is to help explain to people why we do the research we do, and I think, uh, I think as Alexa said so so beautifully, is that you know we don't take for granted that we do have these academic freedoms, that we are asking these questions that the that are so important in people's lives, but um, explaining people to people why we do those studies. So actually, Kinsey, the Kinsey Institute does a tremendous amount of public outreach and media, and I would. Um, if I want to hassle some of my dean colleagues, I would say more than uh, some of the many of the schools. Um, just for a relatively small staff, uh, a small research group, um, we do quite a lot of public outreach uh, and engagement um, with media all around the world. Um, and part of that is to really take what we do. So, so in any given year, the institute in the last few years we publish about a hundred academic articles a year um, from the team. So it's quite prolific academically. But then um, taking those and sharing them with the world. I'm thinking Alexa had a study not long ago on unsolicited genital images. Well, it turns out people, and there's legislation about this, right? Sort of there's the role of consent in sending nude images. Um, and how do we help elevate those conversations? How do we uh, really use data um, to inform it? So I think that's really important for us when we think about you know, we don't really get involved in the cultural cultural as an organization. So, Kinsey, we do have um, affiliative status to the United Nations. Uh, we mostly only uh, use that with respect to things on violence against women and sexual assault uh, globally, sexual violence globally. But otherwise, we really are an unbiased organization. So we don't put out statements on behalf of the Institute. Um, but we do have data that can help inform a lot of these conversations, including about things like abortion, women's rights, uh, mental health, LGBTQ issues. We have, we have data that can, that can elevate those conversations. Can you give us an example of data that would be helpful in, mm, let's just take the mental health, because mm -hmm. I think mental health has been a big, big topic. Well, we can get into abortion if we want, but mental health might be a safer place to start. Sure. What kind of data do you have? Um, Alexa, do you want to – I know you've got some great ones on the sex tech and mental health, I think, is a, a great example of – there's all these concerns of how uh, young people in particular, their use of these new technologies um, – you know, how problematic or not is it? And maybe I'll, I'll punt it to you, Alexa. You know the data better than anyone. Yeah, sure. So we just had a study, my colleagues and I, on looking at, uh, again, sex, sex tech use, so these sexual technologies and mental health. And we were interested in whether people with higher rates of depression and anxiety were more likely to use these. And what's particularly interesting to me about some of these sexual technologies, so this can include things like um, as anything from sexting to using uh, Bluetooth sex toys. But we were really interested in people who are engaging with other people online, so on cam sites in particular. So people finding these connections with other people and whether that sort of helped alleviate symptoms of depression and anxiety. And we found that people um, who had higher rates of depression and anxiety were more likely to seek out sex tech. And I think that it shows how diverse self-care strategies can be for a lot of people. Sex tech is definitely about sex, to be sure. Um, but these online sexual spaces can also provide opportunities for connection and intimacy. And I think that's a really cool finding. Mm -hmm. And what about, uh, you know, we talked about, you mentioned sexual assault. I know there's been some research that you've done on sexual assault at the Institute. Mm -hmm. What are some of those findings? What have you learned about that? Sure. So um, we have a sexual assault research uh, initiative that's led by my colleague Zoe Peterson, who, who you know. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, and we've really been growing out the team on that. So uh, Kristen Jaskowski is working on consent, Jennifer Barber on uh, issues of intimate partner violence. So what we really tried to do was have a critical mass, and I think it, it goes back to what we were saying earlier and what Alexa was describing of the, the kind of Kinsey model of having these different disciplines uh, working on these issues. So Zoe's a clinical psychologist, Jennifer's a, a sociologist, Kristen's PhDs in public health and have this team, this sort of multidisciplinary team, because we know when we look at, let's say, sexual assault on college campuses or in the military, the numbers are still about one in four women have experienced uh, a completed or attempted sexual assault while in college. Um, 
those numbers haven't changed much since the 70s. So whatever we all think, um, whether it's research or interventions or doing, uh, they're not working is the bottom line. So, so what we really try to do at Kinsey is say, how do we take the best minds, put them together, and work on some of these issues? And in that case, what, the, what some of the research is finding is that um, there's a whole bunch of issues that are going on. Sometimes it's cultural. Sometimes it's – in some cases, it's individual psychologies of, there's, of who perpetrators are. But there's larger systems that are allowing sort of these rates to continue, whether it's because there's not been punishment, there's not reporting – so it's a case of how do we take, you know, in cases of individual perpetrator psychologies, there's, you know, certain, particularly for men, there's a certain kind of type or, or, or archetype you can describe, but that doesn't explain rates of about one in four, right? So um, what we really try and do is get researchers together and say, how do we develop interventions that can move the needle a little bit? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it seems as if, you know, the more we talk about it, there's a lot of research that has to do with <clears> – <throat> Issues that uh, people talk about every day, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of a lot of a lot of uh, you know a lot of the research is about. I mean, you ha- you've mentioned the pandemic already, you know, and we've mentioned mental health already. We've mentioned sexual assault already. So I, I guess Natalie, for you, I mean, how how much when you're out trying to um, talk about support and development for Kinsey, do you bring in these? connections to these issues and these these news events that people are talking about. Yeah, I think it's really important to demonstrate the current work that we're doing and how far reaching it is. Um, and so we talk about that a lot. Um, I think Alexa gave a great example with the cam camming sites and how it affects mental health. But then we do have the sexual assault. We have um, trauma. We have the the hookup culture and singles in America. And so it's just, it's such a broad range of research that we're doing. But then also with our collections, um, we try and um, open our doors as much as possible. So a lot of the art that we have, we have an amazing collection of art and artifacts, over 120,000 pieces, um, and getting that out in the public and um, on display, whether it's on the Indiana University campus or other places around the country or even around the world, we want to be able to do that. The art collection, that brings up another question. Okay, I'm the host of the show, so I get to ask the questions, right? (laughs) I've always heard this. I've heard that Kinsey has the the second largest art collection to the Vatican (laughs) in erotica. Is that true? That's our running joke. Okay, Um, I'll take it. (laughs) uh, We we certainly have the largest research collection of uh, sexual materials in the world. And there are some other considerable art collections where our part, who are partners and friends of ours. There's the Weem, the World Erotic Art Museum in Miami, the Museum of Sex in New York City. Uh, art collections are quite considerably larger than both of those. There's also um, a well-known collection in China by our colleague Lu Dalin, uh, and our collection is, uh, I'm sorry, Lu Dalin, our collection is larger than his as well. Um, but it's, uh, in some ways, um, the running joke is the Vatican probably has more, just because of the sheer magnitude, more erotic yeah. art. But but in terms of we also have uh, we have art and fine art, uh, photography, film, uh, archives, books. Um, so the collections are pretty diverse in terms of ways of capturing uh, the role of sex and sexuality and, and the human experience all over the globe. Yeah. I mean, how old is, are some of these pieces of art? Oh, we've got uh, we have some pieces that are, uh, as Natalie said, over two thousand years old. Years old. Yeah. Um, we have rare books and manuscripts. We have um, uh, Peruvian moche, uh, what are called sex pots. Those so are their uh, pieces of pottery. Actually, it's a great story from feminist anthropology. When the first archaeologists looked at them, they said, "Oh, there's people having coitus on these pots, um, and men and women, and they're and they're not facing each other. And we don't usually see sex depicted that way." And it was many years later that feminist archaeologists looked at them and they said, well, I'm sorry, guys, but you, you realize those were two men that you described 20 years ago. <laughs> um, so so that's sort of interesting. That's a whole other story in the field of anthropology of how we – the biases we take when we, when we discover uh, yeah. things. Uh, so we've got just really – and uh, we have a gorgeous collection of uh, George Platt lines, uh, photographs that um, our curator, Rebecca Fassman, did an exhibition with colleagues at the Indianapolis Museum of Art a few years ago. And Platt Lines heavily influenced Maplethorpe, and we have 30 original Maplethorpes. I think we have the largest George Platt Line collection outside of the estate. Um, and uh, just really wonderful, wonderful treasures. I've learned so much from my colleagues uh, who use the sort of uh, the, the materials 
and the collections and my humanities colleagues, uh, Jim and others, that um, about the importance of the preservation of those materials uh, for us, for scholars today, and for future generations. How do people see the collection? That's I mean, a great question. I wanted to mention that um, we have uh, recently opened our gallery that was um, made possible through a generous gift. Um, the Dr. Caroline Beebe Gallery uh, just opened at the Kinsey Institute, and it is um, where our doors are open to anybody. We invite anyone to come and visit us and see some of our collection um, on display. It's just a small snippet of this amazing um, resource that we have, but um, anyone can, can visit our website to learn more or contact us. So we're doing this in the, on the 75th anniversary, so I want to get back to the historian and talk about the early days again. And were there flashpoints during Dr. Wells's time here when, like, a, a new legislator or a new governor or there'd be a new issue that would bring him back into the fray? Yeah, I don't, I don't know the, the, all the history of that, but I think that uh, uh, Justin mentioned the uh, – the, the customs case uh, importing, you know, uh, erotic materials, and that was in favor of IU. And so that was a, that was a pretty big case, and, you know, that was a, a lot of, of IU uh, support in terms of the, the legal um, battles and things like that. I think um, – I, I guess I want to just change your your question into a different question uh, <laughs> about about how Kinsey, you know, he wanted to do the research and he published those two Kinsey reports, but he also was collecting things, uh, art and artifacts and other kinds of sexual materials as a sort of a you know he's got a broad view of how humans have behaved sexually over time in different cultures and things like that, and so. So Kinsey, I'm sure, you know, he, he, he died fairly young and, you know, he never saw the, the, the collections now. And, and the idea that, you know, this is part of the, that, that vision of having not just, you know, some research, but it's about sort of, you know, the, the, the art and the artifacts and how sexuality is depicted in all kinds of different ways. And I think that's – and, of course, Wells was also a great collector – and he understood that universities need to have these collections, not just for the research of certain re researchers now, but in terms of to, uh, to preserve these kind of things for future researchers, because we don't know what kind of questions they're going to be asked, ask, ask, asking, and, and also the, and the technology of asking things, right, has changed over time. And so I think, you know, the thing when I think about the Kinsey over time, Kinsey, uh, you know, basically with, with the Kinsey reports, he was very much uh, in public education. It was, it was about sort of what people do and empirically based and, you know, wasn't just, you know, speculation. And so Kinsey, the Institute has continued that public education part of that, the research and the art outreach are connected, right? And so we've got all kinds of inf information that then we didn't have, and that is building and building and building. And, and that's, you know, I think created this idea that Kinsey is a source, a beacon for knowledge, Right, and I think that's I think that's really when I think about the long history of 75 years, that that's a consistent and a a, a um, uh, enduring motif of the institute. You used lightning before the show. I, yeah, I thought okay. that was pretty well, good. Well, I think I'm going to make you do it again. <laughs> okay, the idea that that the the Kinsey Institute and, and Kinsey himself were lightning rods for criticism and you know, consternation about, okay, let's not do this kind of research or talk about sexuality. Well, think about the lightning rod, okay? What do lightning rods do? Well, they protect structures, okay? And so, so the lightning rod, you know, the lightning hits the lightning rod and it conveys it back to the ground, into the, into the ground, and then it's dissipated. And so, so Kinsey, you know, knew that he was getting going to get all kinds of, of, of slack or all this stuff. But, but he basically was a human lightning rod. And now the Kinsey Institute is a, is a institutional lightning rod for 
this kind of concern about a very basic thing about being human. And they transmit that into a, a understandable and reasonable way to think about sexuality. And so I think, you know, in that way, you know, to think about the lightning rod as this protective device, mm-hmm. right, that this is, I think, part of what universities do, right, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, knowledge is important and, and, and you can't sort of, you know, you, you can't sort of say, well, we have enough knowledge and so let's not, not do this. No, you, it's always expanding. And what we, know, what we don't know is always expanding. When, when, you, when you start knowing things, then the, if you think about it as a sphere, you know, the, the surface of the sphere, there's more stuff that you can't, don't know, right? And it's like, okay, so this is like, this is what, what universities do. And I think the Kinsey, you know, is, is just a wonderful example of what IU has been doing for a long time. We have about, about less than two minutes to go, but I want to ask our researchers, Alexa uh, and Justin, our, our sex researchers, what's next for Kinsey? What are the next big questions you're going to be looking at? Yeah. Alexa? You go first. Sure, yeah. Uh, what a question. I think everything. <laughs> I think that if you look over the history of our 75 years, which Jim and everyone know a lot better than I do, you see a tremendous amount of research coming out. And we do. We publish all the time on a lot of different topics. And so I think anything that could possibly relate to sex or relationships, intimacy, how people sort of function in their everyday lives is something that we will be exploring in some capacity or another. All right, Justin, 30 seconds to wrap oh, this up. I think our goal as researchers is always to widen the lens and how, particularly at Kinsey, and how do we think of different types of relationships, consensual, non-monogamy, monogamous, long-term, casual, different types of sexual orientations and identities, uh, different behaviors. My own next project is on heartbreak and and relationship loss. And so I think uh, continuing to ask bold questions. That's Mm -hmm. uh, what we've done for 75 years and what I hope we continue to do. Thank you so much to uh, Justin Garcia, Jim Capshu, Natalie Kubat, and Alexa Marcotte for being here with us to talk about the Kinsey Institute. For our engineer, Mike Pashkash, our producers, Benta Boutier, Kathy Knapp, and Nathan Moore, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Support for WFIU comes from NAMI Indiana, hosting a Mental Health for All walk at Switchyard Park on October 23rd from 1.30 to 3 p.m. Registration information at namiwalks.org slash Indiana.